0: As always it seems, I think I feel moved to begin when I arrive here with just some acknowledgement of what I find myself arriving into, which is the field of your practice. There's this part of me that arrives with the intention to give a talk that sits there and thinks, hmm, maybe this could be a silent one. something really to be able to savor to delight in to absorb oneself I'm not talking about jhana here absorb oneself into the resonance of the shared field of practice that's here that because you are in the very midst of it, swimming in it breathing it creating it together, you I'm sure have a sense of it and probably also not quite as stark or strong a sense, or maybe you do, but certainly for someone who comes into it um, it's really beautiful I'd like to speak offer some reflections on what in some ways we could call discovering life itself. We could maybe think of it as the relationship between wakefulness and love and what it is that we discover. At the heart of both of these. But I'm not sure if that's exactly what I'm going to speak about. And yet that's what occurs to me to say if I'm trying to say something about what I'm going to speak about. Which I don't always endeavour to do. With the Buddha's teachings, there are so many different ways we can encounter them. We can explore them, we can come to understand them more and more deeply, more fully, more comprehensively. And I'd like to just look at a couple of ways and that are familiar to me, at least. Mm. And even then, when I say that, I'm, hmm, is that what I'm going to (laughs) do? I'm obviously in a bit of a questioning mood in some way. I think that's part of just actually being touched by uh, coming in and being with you. And uh, having been sitting with a group in person in Oxford doing the first in-person day retreat that I've taught since the pandemic um, yesterday. Just in a very different way with people just there for the day. Also really enjoying the sense of of spirit, of heart, of of depth and love that comes forth to bring us to practice. So maybe I should just keep going. That part of me keeps stopping and going, hmm. <laughs> Your time here is coming towards its end. At least for this visit. I'm sure you're aware of that. And if you weren't, it's probably good someone said it in the hall. Um, Because in the next couple of days, things will change and become a little different. And in other ways, things won't be particularly different at all. Heart, mind, body. Thoughts, feelings, breath, sensations, images, sounds, tastes, touch. One way we can look at what's happening here is to develop a very precise and refined attention. To see that everything is constructed of particulars. And as we see this, start to look at the particulars that are constructing what we find ourselves in. We can, it seems, break everything down. And once we break it down, all the things we've broken it down into, so we can you know, break a breath down into in-breath, out-breath, the bit in between. Then we can break an in-breath down into, well, there's the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, the out of the in-breath. And then at the beginning of the in-breath, actually, well, there's this little sensation that happens here and then there's this other one and sometimes it's a bit this way and some So there's a refining and a detailing that we can do. And yet, as I said, as soon as we do that, we see that whatever we do that to or with, we can keep going in that direction. And it goes on and on. And some say it comes to a point where one's got to the bottom of that and others have some sense that maybe one's come to the end of one's scientific instruments if we're talking about subatomic particles or one's come to the end of one's capacities if we're talking about the mind that's exploring. But we haven't necessarily come to the end of the possibility to find something that makes up whatever it is we've found at the bottom of that process. And we could say that there's a a reductionist analysis that goes on with that, where we see, oh yeah, you can break things down, you can see what constructs them, and there's something remarkably helpful in doing that. It's actually liberating for us when we, when we imagine things to be solid, to be self-existent, to be fixed, to be separate from the conditions from which and out of which they're constructed. And we see that there's this experience that's changing, that's fluid. We're invited with wisdom to let go, to relinquish our unconscious habit of holding on to or resisting what is in motion. And sometimes in certain ways of talking about this, it, just the abiding in meditation in the the knowing in the seeing in the wakefulness that is attuned to this experience of changing fluid insubstantial experience that's sometimes described and uh, articulated as phenomena simply being known empty phenomena rolling on And I think when we hear such phrases, it's really important to to see what the value for us is of taking that in and noticing how it affects us. If it seems useful, then wonderful. But also to be aware of the tendency that we'll have, many of us indeed, I think, very understandably, to kind of make it into a, a position that says, oh, that's how it is. That's the way it really is. Things as they really are are like this. It's like we take an ontological position, we take this as a statement of the ultimate truth of things, as a metaphysic in a way. Reality is this changing phenomena, which I would suggest goes a little too far. Not to say the perception and the understanding and the experiential, or the capacity to experientially attune to that subtle experience profoundly beneficial and helpful and as I said liberating but to make a position out of how it appears or what it reveals is something I would suggest caution with regard to shall we say I'm not saying anyone's doing that here but just it's something that happens and the buddha It seems, in one way of looking, he was an expert in this, this seeing in reductive analysis and this seeing into the components and recognizing the constructed nature of everything that appears. This body, this world, constructed, arising out of conditions, formed and shaped, but fluid and dissolving at the same time. And at the same time as the Buddha spoke of this constructed nature of appearances of the way that self and world arise together in relationship to each other dependent upon each other. He also talked at times about a cosmology in which there was earth goddesses and sort of compassionate Brahma god type beings or deity beings and devas and some sense of embodied or if not embodied are uh, somehow some form of divinity taking expression as, as, as remarkable beings beyond anything that we most of us as westerners imagine or conceive or would give any great credence to we tend to dismiss I think many of us rather quickly some sense of a cosmology that goes beyond what modern science suggests and yet as I think I touched upon in a talk somewhere earlier on the retreat the the views we have even the scientific ones are just views if we get attached to them we will suffer or they will limit us or bind us even so What is it to imagine that our, when the Buddha talks about all these cosmological beings, we could say, that maybe it wasn't just a a cultural sort of thing from those relatively unsophisticated or primitive sort of, you know, Asian cultures of two, three thousand years ago, which of course in certain ways sustained through to the present and in fact we'd notice that our our western culture has rather similar sorts of things in it if we look and we don't have to look too hard to see I think that uh, there's something of that there which which we can't really subject to that kind of analysis which we can't really kind of get our head round in order to work out what it is or what it isn't. And then the kind of the dismissal of the the cosmology of the Buddha, I think not that I'm saying we have to believe it or buy into it or imagine that there actually are such beings, although I could just tell you having remembered now when we the last teacher meeting we had here, of the International Vipassana teacher meeting, Com- a, a community we had here at Guy House in 19, sorry, in 2009 and I was coordinating the meeting and at one time rather enjoying having the support of uh, Ajahn Sachitu, one of my teachers and uh, a, a wonderful human being and uh, practitioner teacher. And someone took a photograph of, of this point where either he or I or one of us were kind of leading something with the group. And amazingly, when the photograph came out on the digital camera, there was a big shining white circle right in front of Ajahn. And we all thought, well, it's kind of curious, isn't it? And he said, "Hmm, Davis, yeah. That happens regularly for some of us. They turn up in photographs. And it's like, you know, okay, wow. It's that clear to him. I don't know. I really don't know. But because I really don't know, I have to say, hmm, maybe, yeah. How could I say no any more than I could say yes to that? And we lose something so important when we go to this kind of, if we make it into the absolute or the final resting point. So again, the Buddha's teachings are rafts for crossing streams. They're not just a raft. It's actually, there are so many elements we could call, this is a raft. It crosses a stream. But we don't want to carry it once we've crossed the stream. I'm assuming you're familiar with that metaphor and teaching of the Buddha. What do you do when you've crossed the stream having built a raft to get across it? Do you carry it with you? Do you leave it there? Obviously, the monks, all and nuns, all very wisely said, no, of course, you leave it there, don't you? Course, one might think oh, I should take it with me, I might meet and I might come to another stream, um, but you might need a different raft for that one. I think would be my thought. An that image that's uh, sometimes used, and I'm the next retreat I'll be teaching after this one here will be at Insight Meditation Society at IMS in Barry Massachusetts. And uh, one of the founders, Joseph Goldstein who uh, also I a great uh, appreciation for as one of my teachers and I uh, f- feel fortunate to know as a friend equally. And uh, he has an image that he often uses that probably many of you will be familiar with or who do he talks about you know, looking up into the sky seeing the big dipper or classically the great bear. Um, I think it's Ursa Major, the constellation that looks a bit like a pot or a dipper. And and the sort of sense of seeing that, oh, it looks like a dipper, but there's nothing there. It's just a bunch of lights in the sky. Actually, it's quite impressive lights, as it happens. But the little points of light that we see, that we make into something that looks like that. And it's a really useful and powerful image. And you know Joseph takes that as a basis for seeing how that actually, it's not there. But we feel that it is. It's great. A really powerful, useful, profound teaching. And what I also find useful to contemplate in that, to see that, okay, it's not there, but is there something about the way we construct something whole out of a bunch of random pieces that's pointing to something else of significance? Because, of course, we need to understand the constructed nature of the sense of the Big Dipper. But the Big Dipper is not separated from the whole the wholeness, the rest of the night sky, and the sense of wholeness, of which sort of a partial wholeness would be making a something out of this, but a a wholeness that goes beyond that, which we might notice looking up into the sky at night, on a starry night, if you've had such occasion, and we've had a few recently, they're rather cold, but there's also something beautiful to be out at night, one has been practicing and not sleeping through the entire night hours, which at the moment are about twelve or fourteen, so I'm guessing you've been awake for some of that, some of you. Something vast. Something also indivisible about it. You can't sort of break it down. We don't look at it and think, oh, that bit should be over there really. It's too big for that. And the way we kinda of get our mind around things and try and fix and improve them. There's something mysterious. There's something vast. There's something compelling. What is that? I'm not suggesting we answer the question. What is that? But do we be interested in what the question points us towards? The Buddha's teaching is often summarized as in a single phrase, in a way, wrapping up the, the Four Noble Truths as liberation through non-clinging. Non-attachment. We've talked about non-attachment. Well, I've talked about non-attachment. And detachment and what the difference is. That non-clinging doesn't mean we disconnect. It means we don't it doesn't mean we pull away it means we don't bind ourselves to it's interesting, and I reflected again when I spoke of this um, I reflected on this this sort of this way in which in the Western world, we have an understanding of attachment that is healthy in relationship to the parenting that we receive in our early childhood, that forming an attachment with the source, the person, the being from whom we receive that is really important. It's very interesting. as Again, you probably know the story of the Buddha. His mother died soon after he was born. He grew up raised by his aunt. Any modern Western psychologist who heard about that would think, hmm, I suspect they would think I'm not one so I can't say but I imagine they might think hmm, he might have had attachment issues. Obviously using the different meaning of attachment but I think that's a useful thing to bear in mind sometimes when we understand the thrust and the way and the shape the Buddha's teachings have come through sometimes. Because we need a healthy connection to life. And if in seeing it as empty we in any subtle way are holding back and so empty and the Buddha said see it as empty but what he meant I think we have to explore if we see it as empty in a way that's not examined carefully there's a risk that we take that as suggesting that we don't give value to this. Because it's kind of a bit like an illusion. And the Buddha only ever said, and it's really important, that it is like an illusion. He did not say it is an illusion. It's like an illusion insofar as constructed and it appears and the appearance and the reality are not the same. And that way it is absolutely like an illusion. But it is not an illusion. He's not saying that. And emptiness is not... Well, the teaching of, of emptiness is not suggesting there isn't value in that which is empty. In fact, quite the opposite. It's empty. Phenomena are empty. Experience is empty of separate, fixed, inherent existence. And we sometimes shorted it down. We talk about empty and emptiness all the time. And we sometimes forget that we're talking about an emptiness or an absence of unchangingness, and an absence of separateness, and an Absence of inherent existence, which is something that exists in and of itself. There is not that to be found. Absolutely not. There is not that to be found which is unchanging. There is not that to be found which is separate or that exists independent from what it arises out of. And in understanding that, we see that by speaking of emptiness, we're equally talking of phenomena that are empty of inherent or fixed permanent self-existence and are therefore full of connected arisingness or connected transformingness. If we take the opposite words. And we see there's a preciousness in this that is so evident to us, I believe, and not to us because we've done lots of meditation, as I assume you probably have this month, I haven't been checking, but I can imagine it's safe to say. To anyone, when they, we see a baby, newly born, young, in the early weeks or months, even years, a young child, so easily we see the preciousness of this being we've been with someone or particularly maybe an elder or an elderly person near their time of death or at the time of death we feel the preciousness of this life that's soon to end. Now It's kind of obvious in a sense isn't it that it's precious a sense of something of such profound intrinsic deep value it's what, why else would we be practicing? It's because there's something that we care about so deeply that it causes us to do this, it seems to me. If it wasn't, why would we care that it suffered? If it wasn't a value, profound, preciousness, deep and almost unspeakable fullness of value, of preciousness. understanding what we mean when we talk about emptiness it means equally understanding that it implies fullness it's what is it empty of what is it full of that's what we're seeking to penetrate more fully and deeply And so I think we can, from this perspective, perhaps usefully reflect on what runs for so many of us, it seems parallel or is woven through at the journey of our practice, is our encounter with a kind of a judging, a shaming, a criticising of ourselves, an undermining of our own sense of value or preciousness that we kind of find ourselves often struggling to to find some space with or to release ourselves from the grip and the impact of this. And it can be deeply painful and distressing at times. And, you know, the images are, are sometimes used and helpfully of the, the, the Buddha's encounter with Mara, which... You know is seen as the embodiment of these forces um some of which express themselves in a in a sense of bringing fear and doubt and you know Mara turns up trying to make the Buddha feel fear and doubt that sounds kind of like what happens, doesn't it when that self critical undermining judging self attacking patterning arises and there's Many different ways we can usefully explore and work with this territory, and some of them are called, and I don't believe they are simply psychological. I don't think this is something simply psychological, but there are tools within the worlds of psychology that can be very helpful and uh, I'm just wanting to name it because rather than going into the how of working with it at this point just because it stands, it seems, often for me in stark contrast to what we also find ourselves discovering in terms of that sense of what is precious that we partake of and actually express by our very existence something profoundly precious. And yet we don't always know this. We don't always feel this. And I think it has perhaps some relationship to the way our modern Western culture has lost the sense of the dignity of life of which we are part and all things, living and otherwise, are part. there's a poem by Mary Oliver entitled The Arrowhead and I just went to look for where it was and it's not there so I'll just give you a little sense of it rather than try and dig it out of where I thought I'd put it and it describes the, the author the poet Mary Oliver encountering what she clearly recognises as the spirit of a Indigenous American person who looks at her and speaks to her, and it arises around her having found an arrowhead. Now I'm just getting it. It arises around her having found an arrowhead and then thinking, Oh, I'll take that home and put it on my desk, and won't that look cool? And won't people think, Wow, that's a nice trinket? Which is kind of what we sometimes have done with the things of indigenous cultures in our culture as we've met it made them into tokens or treated them as material things to be taken or appropriated and she in encountering this what we would have to say she maybe I, ca- I can't remember if she describes it as a ghost or the spirit of a of an indigenous person from What we tend to call America, and I believe those people called Turtle Island. People who come from there, came from there originally, still there. He says something like to her, "I would rather eat mud and die." Then steal as you steal. Then, then lie as you lie. And I'm sorry, I don't have the whole poem. I might dig it out later. This thing of treating experience things as something to be stolen, to be taken, treating. Truth is something to be bent for our own benefit or primarily material advantage as our culture actually very powerfully it seems invites and maybe even encourages and certainly tolerates as behaviour to steal, to take what is not ours to misrepresent what we know to be true for a self advantage is such a loss that's involved in this to our spirit. And it seems to me that the 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 issues around a sense of an easy connection with self-worth, self worth, self love self-love and a real knowing of our preciousness are connected to the way in which collectively we've been taken without knowing it into a framework in which we don't have respect for the form other forms of life we don't have respect for the dignity of even in inana- what we call inanimate matter and when we begin to respect where we are and what we are. There's a natural quality of dignity that arises. There's a natural quality of uprightness that's expressing and embodying something beautiful. And animals and trees and landscapes have it effortlessly. They don't need to do something to produce it. They haven't lost it, it seems to me. And that quality of respect for all that we might imagine to be other, is actually a basis for the deepest dignity we may know, I think, because when we see we are not separate from it, we understand if we do not respect it, we are actually disrespecting ourselves. If we do not see its preciousness, we are actually blinding ourselves to the preciousness of what this is, which is not different than or separate than whatever our attention may alight upon and perceive through the lens of respect or not respecting. And I feel that some of the experience as human beings of guilt and shame and lack of self worth is a actually it's a, a collective human cultural karma. It's not so much our own. But it of course shows up in a story that talks about me and mine and what I did or didn't do or should or shouldn't have done. It talks that way because it's coming through the, the filter and the frame of our, our our self-talk, our self-structure. But actually it's pointing to something larger which so far as we've done it, and not all of us I'm going to say and not all cultures or communities but not only Western cultures and communities have done this, European cultures. To make human human beings and, and human culture somehow the pinnacle of creation or of evolution, the idea that, you know, this is the best or the most advanced or the yeah, the peak, and treat others as less, other cultures as less, other peoples, races, genders, species, lands, ecosystems, from that place of we or I am at the top. Something or someone else is inevitably forced to be less than. And as a result, treated without respect, exploited, destroyed peoples, animals, plants, ecosystems, our world, endangered by a failure to see that we are not at the pinnacle or more important than. And in doing so, There's a, there's a way we become entangled in our own seeing outwardly that we end up seeing inwardly in the same way. You know, to understand that there's, there's nowhere else than here. It's not just a nice spiritual phrase to say, just be here, there's nowhere else. It's the truth of it. One thing we're learning as a collective human culture is that if you try and put something and call it, I've put it somewhere else, actually you haven't. We, the phrase we use for doing that is throwing it away. Yeah, it sounds like I should be able to, doesn't it? I'm here, over there is out of sight, I'll throw it away. But look, interesting, it comes back. Always, reliably, unstoppably. And the plastic we've thrown away comes back in the very cells of our children through the food that we feed them and ourselves. There isn't somewhere we can throw it away because it's connected. Because it's empty of separateness. And the guilt or the shame that sometimes we might feel about our own life or our own existence, it may be a legacy of our collective disconnect from nature and from life. It's not something we necessarily did personally. We might even love the natural world. We might even feel this deep longing for joy and our connection with it. But at some level, unless we've really examined and begun to deal with the effects of the in a way the the kind of the water that we've swum in collectively of how the world is seen by our culture and community and our species in a certain way. There's a, there's a, a shared human collective pain and sorrow at what we've done and are doing to ourselves and the world it seems to me. I think we feel it all of us But it's not self. It's not ours. It's not actually about you or me or what we personally failed at. Although all of you, I'm sure, well, I don't know. I certainly could make a good long list of all those things. And I suspect some of you could have a good list of all the things we've failed at, messed up, didn't get right, feel sorry or regretful or remorseful for how we did or didn't do this in the past or did or didn't do that in the past. but to see it's not just ours. When we say it's not me or not mine in dharma teaching it's often easy to think it's over there but just just hopefully there's some sense from what I'm suggesting that there isn't an over there to put that. There is nowhere over there there's only here. And so what it's actually saying when we say it's not me it's not mine is oh it's not just me. It's not just mine. You get how that changes it? It's like, oh yeah, it's not on me, but it's not somehow apart from me either. It's not mine that this came to be so, as in personal. But I am part of that that holds it. And I think seeing that this belongs to us all. There's a natural sadness in this. A natural grief that I think we often have to find and meet. And it takes courage and a lot of love and patience to to meet those places in ourselves. And I think they're there for all of us at times in our practice. Maybe that for someone that's not going to be the case. And I'm, I'm really happy for you if that's so. I'm not predicting this for you. I don't know. But it seems to me not unlikely that that will be part of all of our journeys. And that the the pushing away and the, the judging and the criticism that we direct in whatever directions, whether outwardly or at times inwardly, it tends to sit over or wrap around and therefore keep us distant from some sense of loss or grief or sorrow or remorse. At least that's what I've often found for myself and certainly in many conversations with other people in this territory so so in this practice as we if we if we recognize this that nothing is to be given more importance than something else in a certain way seeing the the empty fluid nature of A rising experience of a rising phenomenon it doesn't quite make sense to single something out and say this is it this is the thing this is the one but at the same time in that sense of not picking anything up and saying this is more what that's saying at the same time is that actually nothing is less nothing is less if nothing is made more then nothing is made less we can't do one without doing the other and when that subtle tendency starts to drop away and the, you know, the Buddha talks of it in relationship to self as one of, the, one of the deepest fetters of conceit. To be more than or better than, to be less than is equally a conceit and remarkably to be the same as is also a conceit. Because the sense of it isn't about the conclusion, it's about the separate position that one is measuring against another and the idea that those are separate places in any absolute way. And so more than, better than, less than, worse than, same as, equal to, all has the conceit of separate self-existence woven into it. so here we learn to practice to leave no thing out to hold no thing back to open into the fullness equally as the emptiness we might talk about letting go into the emptiness and opening into the fullness but we can open into the emptiness and let go into the fullness just kind of depends where we start from as to how that tends to feel. And so we're invited to be curious about where this leaves us, to be deeply curious about where we find ourselves, as in this wakefulness, the sensitivity, that's clearly revealing not just what is known, but the very fact of the capacity to do so. And what is aliveness? This conscious, sensitive responsiveness. I think, you know, who or what is thinking? Whatever thoughts are arising in response to what is being heard right now. It's very interesting where you shift from who to what. When we talk about, uh, who knows? It kind of has a bit of a dismissive quality. We say, what knows? Hmm. It has a different feeling to it. We say, who cares? It has a dismissive quality, doesn't it? Well, Who cares? You say, what cares? It feels very different to me. What cares? What is it that cares? And of course some people might say, Well, caring isn't something that goes on here. I, I believe it does. Because that's been my experience and the affirmation of thousands of conversations with people. Caring is here happening. Deeply. So saying, you know, what is it that thinks? What is it that knows? What is it that cares? It opens a sense of inquiry. It opens a sense of interest, of curiosity, of possibility. Rumi says, When it is cold and raining you are more beautiful and the snow brings me even closer to your lips. The inner secret that which was never born you are that freshness and I am with you now. I can't explain the goings or the comings. You enter suddenly and I am nowhere, again, inside the majesty. And the majesty of this humanness that is both just form and empty, but equally and inexplicably born of mystery, of something sacred, of what is divine? What might it mean that God so loved the world that she took birth in it? As our tradition in the West suggests, came into it as a teaching of love and mystery. What is it uh, inhabit what we call divine abidings, the realms of the sacred heart of life that we can know, that we can enter and abide in? It's what we call the Brahma Viharas. These teachings. We call the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, the awakened Dharma. Point to the deathless, Nibbana. And we talk about this in different ways. As ending, cessation, no moreness, extinguishing and yet we also talk about it and hear the Buddha talk about it as the deathless that which was never born and is outside time this Dharma that the Buddha shared with us, that has been shared with us by practitioners of all genders, of through the ages is understood to be well proclaimed apparent here and now to be understood by ourselves timeless inviting investigation and leading onwards leading onwards we get interested to know and to understand more deeply as our heart-mind is drawn towards its, its depths. And I'd like to play you a piece of music that speaks of someone who I'm rather fond of's own journey in this regard. I think this will work. If it doesn't, forgive me. You might like to just listen and see where this lands for you. Leonard Cohen. Straight from the sun above. And so inside my little room, there comes the rain. this circumstance I'll try to say a little more Informedness, circumstance. I'll try